When we talk about the scriptures, and especially in a time like this when we're trying to dive deeper in them and to understand them better and, and to, you know, see how it all works, in general, we're, we're, you know, learning the story. We're learning the story better. And we've talked about the value of seeing as a story. And, you know, that's why the Jeff Caven's 14 books to get you to get the story first. Or the picture Bibles that I had that got me even at the age of six and seven and eight, you know, really into the story even before I got any depth out of it. Just getting the story first. And part of that, when we do that, we should also recognize that we are part of that story, too. We are a character in it. We're a character at the end, as usually we think of it, right? You know, that, you know, God has done these things through Israel. God has done these things through his Messiah. God has done these things through his church then. And the church goes out to the world. And now I'm a part of that story. I'm in that same stream of divine providence going out from there. And that's a thing I very, want you, very much want you to think about as you leave here, that you are now in the story. It's also interesting, though, to recognize that in a certain sense, we are also in the story in the very beginning, right? We are already in the story because we are man, and man is the one who's in the garden. Man is the one who is given the original vocation. The man and woman in the, in the garden are given the vocation of being image-bearing stewards. They are creature, and yet God says, I want you to bear my image in this creation. I give you the, the responsibility of gardening, of, of tending to it. This is your job. You are bringing me into this world. And they totally fail, right? That, of course, is the point of Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Like, God makes it all good. God puts them in charge. They totally blow it, right? And so that, that's the thing for us to remember in, in the background. When we hit today's first reading here, when we see the, the story of Exodus uh, with the telling of the Ten Commandments, it's good that at least every three years we hear it in its entirety, not just the catechetical formula we all grew up with. The first commandment, I am the Lord your God, you shall know the gods besides me. The second commandment, you shall keep holy the Lord's name. The third commandment, keep holy his day. But to actually see that entire, I mean, of the reading, 40% of it is the first commandment. The entire background I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, that place of slavery. You shall not have other gods. And then he goes all the ways through that they could have done that and why they are no longer allowed to make these idols. Well, they were never allowed to make them, but why he's saying clearly, nope, don't make them from anything in the sky above, the sea below, anything on this earth. Don't bow down to anything. And this is what happens if you do. Because in a sense... Not only is idolatry the sin that bothers them most in their time in Israel, it is the preeminent sin of the human race. In the garden, when they choose their will over him, that was idolatry. They made them the idol. When they then went out into the world and, and, you know, created other idols, they were doing the main thing. The problem with the pagans isn't that they're pagans, that they're not Jewish people. The main problem with them is that they're idol worshippers. Idolatry is the ultimate sin of the human race, not worshipping God the creator as he ought to be worshipped. Again, it's the sin in the fall, and it continues down that line. And you think about it, what is the sin? We're supposed to to worship God the creator. We as creatures should know to do that. In idolatry, we take a piece of God's creation and worship that instead. We creatures cease to worship the creator, but worship a piece, a chunk of the creation. And that's the ultimate problem there when we do that. And Paul tells us, though, that that idolatry isn't just this random thing of like, the bull is strong. 
Therefore, I should worship the bull. You know, the, the rivers are necessary for life. Let's worship the rivers. He tells us that it's actually driven by the power of demons. Paul tells us that idolatry and demonology are connected, that it's the demons who were leading them in the past and even in the present of his time to worship these other things. And that makes sense because the fallen angels hate God creator and hate his creation and hate his creatures. So if he can trick the creatures into worshiping a piece of creation instead of the creator, they not only block God and mock us, they also end up degrading creation. In a weird way, worshiping creation becomes a degradation of God's creation, and that's why they like it. They like to put something else in there instead of the worship of of God. So that's a great background to realize that there is never a time that that's not the threat to us. You know, when you ask, you know, kids, what, what idols do we have? They struggle because they've heard of, like, Zeus, and they might have heard of Thor. Well, of course, they've heard of Thor. They live in 2018. Thor's a movie, right? But, you know, they have an idea of these gods. They have a hard time realizing we're constantly finding idols. We're constantly exalting some piece of creation up above us. And we're constantly blocking out the sun with this eclipse of some piece of creation and getting that in the way, whether it be money, whether it be fame, whether it be, you know, LeBron James, whether it be, you know, oh, my bracket, my bracket is falling apart. It's March. Oh, I'm losing, you know, money. You know, those, you know, those are the things we can lift up and put in there. You know, even our own family, C.S. Lewis in The Great Divorce. You could argue the entire book, The Great Divorce, is him showing us different ways we make idols. One of the most heartbreaking scenes is the, the, the mother who, in her obsession with her child after it died, basically ignored her other child, her husband, and even her God out of her, like, basically adoration of the child that she had lost. And Lewis is saying, if you can't get God in there, you can't have any of these other things. If you can let go of this child and worship God, you can even have the child back. But if you put the child ahead of God, you can't even get to either of them. The idea that if we don't put the first things first, we can't even ever get to the secondary things because we've made the secondary things first. So that's the little background there to, to, to remember this is always going to be our problem. So now why does it, this get paired with this gospel? Because, I mean, Jesus is in the temple. The temple is a place where God has left his presence, right? The temple is where God comes to dwell on earth. The temple is God's seat. It is his footstool. It's where God meets his creation as creator. How does that work? But the thing that I hope we've hit on a couple ways this weekend is to realize that as time went on, the Jewish people, because of, of where they had been and what they'd gone through, they finally got rid of their golden calves. They finally stopped worshiping Baals. They stopped worshiping the idols of the nations around them. And in exile, they learned how to pray to God. But because we're human and we're fallen, even that could get warped. So they knew that they were supposed to be different than the nations, and they made their nation an idol. They knew that Jerusalem was God's holy city, and they made Jerusalem an idol. They knew the temple was where God came to earth, but they began to make the temple itself an idol. Ezekiel sees the Shekinah leave the presence of the temple and fly off into the sky. And he knows that someday it'll come back, but he knows in his day it hasn't come back yet. And as we said, the exile keeps on going, right? 490 years, not just 70 years. And so when Jesus is coming there, they have basically idolized this temple. 
They have made all of those things, the, the king, the Torah, the city, the temple, their nationality, they've made them idols in their own way. They still worship one God, but it's gotten fuzzy in how they do it. They're not seeing themselves as image-bearing stewards. They're seeing themselves as we're better than the nations because God chose us because he likes us, not God gave us vocation to go out and do this. So what happens when Jesus shows up? We as Catholics know, of course, the Shekinah has returned, but they wouldn't have thought of that at that point. But what's the important thing to realize is that Jesus is constantly placing himself in opposition to the temple. Think of his very first miracles, right? When he goes in, on the Sabbath day and heals in the synagogue. When he casts out demons, which only the creator can do. When he has the man lowered through the, the, the roof and says, your sins are forgiven. And they say, who but the creator can forgive sins? He goes, uh-huh, check this out. Boom, right? You know, they, they didn't get it. You know, like the, the, he, he, he says, you're right on path. You're following, follow that logic through. Your sins are forgiven. And he can walk. They should have caught it, but they didn't. He's doing all the things that happens when God meets earth. He's doing the things that show God's presence is among you. I'm here right now. But they kept on saying, but our temple, our temple, our temple. Jesus is intentionally being subversive of the temple cult. He's intentionally going around that. Even the one time he deals with the temple in Galilee, remember the leper? comes up and the leper gets healed and jesus says now go to the chief priest and show yourselves and he was like ah see jesus works for the temple no he did the healing the only reason to go show yourself to the priest is the rules in leviticus say you cannot rejoin the community until the priests have declared you clean so it's almost like he's emphasizing the fact he's avoiding it by the fact he gives one little pitience of recognition to it so that when he comes in this moment, N.T. Wright phrases this in this way. He says, and Benedict says something similar, that basically Jerusalem is not big enough for the two of them. You can't have Jesus as the presence of God in Jerusalem. At the same time, you have the temple as the presence of God in Jerusalem. One of the two has to give. So when Jesus says, tear this down in three days, I'll rebuild it. We're told by John, he's referring to his body. But also he's saying, one of these will supplant the other. And on Good Friday, they must have thought, we've saved the temple, right? It's the chief priests, it's the Sadducees, it's Caiaphas and Annas who say, better that one man die than the whole nation be destroyed. They'll be right, but in the wrong way, right? And so they're saying, we can save our temple. If this man comes and starts a rebellion and the Romans come and crush us, we lose our temple, our town, our independence, our ability to worship the one God in this exception carved out in, in the, the Roman world. We'll, be, we'll lose all of that. Better that one man die so we keep our temple. And of course he does. He does die. And they get to keep their temple. But the veil is torn. There's a mark that something is different. And when three days later he's raised up again, his temple is rebuilt, and it's clear that he is the presence of God. He is the Shekinah. He is where heaven meets earth. Then all of a sudden, that temple has been upstaged. It has been surpassed. There is a new way in which God is here on earth. And he will say, I'm not going to limit myself to just one town and one building. You go out, proclaim my word to all nations. You go out and baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. You go make disciples. And when you do, do this in memory of me. Take this, all of you, and eat it. He sends them out so that in every little place they go, every place they establish Christians, everywhere they go, there is a new tabernacle 
in a new temple, in a new holy place. And again and again and again, he'll do that until the entire world is filled with his presence. So it's a very intentional thing that he's doing here. He's not just coming out and chasing them out because they're, you know, oh, you're cheating people. He's saying, this is the choice you have to make. Continue to hold on to your idolatry, even if it's a Jewish idolatry, or accept that God is doing something different. He is placing himself here in a new way. It's still God's family, but it's built around the Messiah. There's still a temple, but it's built around his body and blood. There still is a people of God, but it's going to be reconfigured in Jesus and his twelve. Instead of the twelve tribes, it's a new Israel in the twelve apostles. So he's rebuilding everything right there. And this is our story. It began with our story back in Genesis when we failed. It goes all the way through all the other miles and miles and centuries and centuries to a point where Jesus can send us out in Little Waverly, Nebraska. You've got the Shekinah. You've got the presence. You've got the new temple. You've got Jesus making his new family. You've got Jesus making you. And then he's going to send you out renewed, refreshed to go to your parishes, to go to your families and your churches, to do the same kind of thing that he did with those first apostles once they figured out what it meant to rebuild the temple in three days.